This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. I am pleased to be joined this week by Dr. Raymond Barnett, author of Earth Wisdom, John Muir, Accidental Taoist, charts humanity's only future on a changing planet, which he published in 2016. Ray is the author of seven previous titles, which encompass the varied fields of study for which he has not only deep passion, but also expertise, including evolutionary ecology, particularly that of California, natural history, mountaineering, traditional Chinese language and culture, mystery fiction, and John Muir. Ray has been a guest on my program before. Welcome back. Thank you, Jennifer. I think we need to set the scene. I want to have a little context on you and your work and what the early influences in your life were that led you to a love and appreciation for the natural world, plants, animals, processes. Well, going way back, uh, when I was a kid growing up in Oklahoma, both my parents grew up on farms in Missouri. And so for Thanksgiving and summer and various vacations, we'd go back to the, uh, the ancestral farms in Missouri and and I had this love of, uh, of uh, going out into the fields and exploring the barns and tromping around. And I think that's where I first discovered just uh, an innate, for some reason, love for landscape and the plants and animals that were in it. And that love has really never left me. And I've done a fair amount of traveling. And I find myself, when I'm in Switzerland, doing the same sort of tromping around in the mountains there when I'm in China tromping around the mountains, uh, often on my own. And it's, uh, it's been a, a wonderful part of my life that I cherish. And once I had gone to college and discovered that people were writing about this and thinking about the natural world and our relation to the natural world, I was able to add on the intellectual, if you will, appreciation of, uh, of this feeling of belonging in the natural world. And it's just sort of blossomed from there. Because the book is going to cover some of these things, I'd like to also ask you about your your beginning love and study of China, its history, its culture, its religions. Well, <laughs> that's a, an odd story. Uh, in my <clears throat> sophomore year at Yale, I, I was majoring in philosophy and literature, and I I needed a class that met Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 11. Just, just it would fit into my schedule. And I thumbed through the book and discovered that Chinese history was being offered. And it met at that time frame. And even better, there was no term paper required for this class. So it was completely serendipitous. Uh, but then as I uh, took the class and uh, did the readings and listened to some wonderful professors, Arthur and Mary Wright, I discovered that there was something about China and its culture and traditions that really pulled me in. Mm-hmm. And it's a very different culture, of course, than our Western culture. So mm-hmm. I fell in love with it. And uh, and again, that has uh, only blossomed through the years as well. And you've been there several, many times at this point in your life to, to study and immerse yourself and enjoy that landscape, I think. Yes, I have. Through the course of this book, you are comparing this idea of a a Chinese philosophy, Taoism, with the writings and study and philosophical worldview of John Muir. When when did you first meet John Muir? 
figuratively speaking, and how did you come to study him in depth? Well, I came to Muir uh, relatively late in life. I mean, of course, living in California since 1976, I knew about John Muir. I spent a lot of time in Yosemite, so I was aware of the sort of cute little quotes that uh, you can buy to put on your refrigerator door from Muir, you know, going to the mountains is going home, all this sort of stuff. But I really didn't know much about him until one of my uh, roommates in college was editing a, uh, a book on spiritual exemplars. And he, he called me up. He knew I backpacked a lot in the high country. And he, uh, he wanted a chapter on John Muir as an example of a, a spiritual exemplar uh, of the natural world. And uh, in the way I work, uh, I dove into Muir and read a lot of his writings and several of the uh, better biographies of him and wrote the chapter and became fascinated with him and couldn't uh, resist mentioning the remarkable similarity between much of Muir's activities and ideas to Taoism in China. So my roommate uh, loved the chapter, and he told me I had to make a book out of it. So I did and went yeah. back and finished reading almost everything that Muir had written and particularly in his journals that he took with him on every one of his uh, rambles in the wilderness. These journals have been really ignored for the most part uh, and they weren't even published until 1938, you know, 24 years after uh, Muir had died in 1914. And so their contents are not well known, but as I delved more deeply into the journals, I discovered much to my surprise that this sort of vague intimation I had when I was writing the chapter was not only true, the similarities between Muir and the Taoist tradition, but they were uncannily extensive. Yeah. And that, that Muir in his journals particularly had sketched out, not in an organized way, but definitely it was there, a, an entire world view, a, a way of looking at humans uh, in relation to the natural world and a way of thinking about humans that I had not seen uh, in the Western tradition other than little uh, hints here and there, Heraclitus and St. Francis of Assisi and Alexander von Humboldt. But none of those people put it together the way Muir did. Uh, that was really exciting to me, to see that Muir had come completely independently of the Taoist tradition. I mean, he knew nothing about China. And completely independent of the Taoist tradition, he had come to a way of looking at the world, a worldview that was remarkably consonant with the Taoist tradition produced 3,000 years ago, mm -hmm. half a world away. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Before we go any further, step back a little bit and give listeners a brief overview of Taoism and its history. Well, that's a big question. I know. And, and there's not uh, a lot of consensus about it. But uh, Taoism in general is a, is a way of approaching life that has spawned a philosophy and a religion and a folk culture in China, all of these. And in addition to that, it's a relic that has come to us out of the Neolithic. Here in the West, our Neolithic cultures have generally disappeared. Uh, we've, we've obliterated them. Mm -hmm. However, in China, uh, the Neolithic lasted about uh, half a millennium longer than it did in the West. And so it got more firmly established in the population of the folk of the country. 
And so that this relic way of approaching life and of understanding life persisted in China and uh, has elaborated in the oh, 4,500 years since uh, history, quote-unquote, began. And it's an extremely varied approach to living life, but for the most part, unlike the, particularly the Western tradition, it sees humans as a natural and integral part of the whole, not set aside to have dominion over the rest of creation, but just another one of what they call the 10,000 creatures. And it sees a vitality and a spark that runs throughout the entire natural world, not just the plants and animals, but mountains and rocks and water as well. And they attempt to describe this as best they can by the term the Tao, which can be translated as the path or the way. But they don't for a moment think that they've really nailed it down. In fact, they say uh, right in the opening of the Tao Te Ching, the Tao that can be described is not the Tao. And so they understand that they're going about something that's really indescribable, but you can say things about it. You can say that it's spontaneous, for example. You can say that it doesn't care a whit for humans, one way or the other. And you can say that it's at the very basis of uh, existence and that we need to be aware of it and to give it its due and to have some proper reverence for it as well. It has its roots uh, four or 5,000 years okay. ago. It sort of became codified a little bit uh, by a fellow named Zhang Daoling uh, about oh, three or 400 years into our common era. However, the great texts that describe it that you've mentioned, the Tao Te Ching and the Zhuangzi, were about six or 700 BCE. Okay. Yes. Uh, that, that's an incomplete explanation of Taoism, but that's uh, maybe in a nutshell. What year was this that you wrote the chapter for your college and roommate? This was only about four years ago. And then you dive in really deeply to mm -hmm. reading John Muir. Mm -hmm. And Describe for listeners that arc of who John Muir was that you are trying to represent. Well, I'm trying to represent what I hope is a more uh, complete portrait mm -hmm. of Muir. Mm -hmm. He had a strong uh, spiritual and uh, religious side to him. He was raised in a, a fundamentalist house, and uh, he, he was forced to uh, memorize the Bible. He knew uh, all of the uh, New Testament and two-thirds of the Old Testament by sore flesh, as he put it, because his father hit him, beat him. Uh, if he made a mistake uh, in it. And, and he, also, uh, he also beat him if he wasn't working hard enough on the farm in Wisconsin. And uh, so it was out of this sort of uh, very deeply religious household that Muir, uh, when he finally got away from the house and his father and his family, and he decided to, after a couple of years at the University of Wisconsin, that he wasn't really for book learning. And he decided to take a walk from Indiana to uh, the Gulf of Mexico, of all things. And this was in 1867, just right. two years after the end of the Civil War, when the countryside was awash with bands of people who uh, couldn't make a living and uh, were robbing travelers. So Muir took off, and from the very first, he started looking at things with his own eyes and coming up with his own understanding of how the world worked and how people fit into it which was at odds with not only what his father had beat into him, but was also at odds with uh, most of the Western tradition. He, he kept the idea of uh, God as mm -hmm. creator of the universe and dropped virtually everything else about our concept of God. 
And then he looked around and discovered that this universe was, or the planet at any rate, was just shot through with vitality and beauty, and that this vitality and beauty, it was inherent to the natural world, and that alligators and snakes and uh, later sequoia trees were, were part of this vitality and this wonderful spectacle. And so just by virtue of traveling through the world and the wild parts of the world, particularly with wide open eyes and an open mind, he constructed an understanding of the world and what must be going on in it that was uh, fairly consistent and coherent, that was uh, a complete departure really in its entirety, and which was, interestingly enough, very similar to what had been produced in China over three or 4,000 years. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Raymond Barnett, an evolutionary ecologist. His newest book, Earth Wisdom, makes broad connections between the nature-based imminent worldview of John Muir and that of the Taoism of China. Between them, Ray sees a way forward for people and the planet we live on. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with writer, biologist, and mountaineer Dr. Raymond Barnett about his newest book, Earth Wisdom, in which he traces the worldview of John Muir and envisions a possible salvation for people and our planet. Welcome back. Your coverage of these of his treks that you have gleaned out of all of his journals is epic. And you keep coming back around to not just the astonishing amount of travel and views that he takes in and plants that he collects and geology that he describes, but you keep coming back to this worldview and how they're all involved. I want to come back to the idea of him being a scientist and then go back to this idea of the spirituality or philosophy worldview. Well, he was uh, a very accomplished and recognized scientist, and that's something that, that unfortunately we've lost in our current uh, image of Muir as sort of an avuncular, uh, cheerful environmentalist. He was a, a very precise scientist who made important contributions uh, in two fields, botany and geology. Mm-hmm. And in both of these fields, he was in touch with the leading scientists in those fields of the day. He regularly went on botanizing expeditions with Asa Gray from the Harvard Arboretum, who was uh, Charles Darwin's uh, foremost advocate here in North America. And on one of those trips, uh, Asa Gray was being uh, visited uh, by Sir Joseph Hooker, who was uh, Charles Darwin's best friend back in England. And the same goes in the field of uh, geology. When Muir made it to Yosemite Valley, the received wisdom from Whitney, a Harvard geologist, was that the valley had been formed by the bottom just literally dropping out of it. And Muir said, that doesn't seem likely to me. And and again, he went through life with open eyes and an open mind. And he started looking around and he saw uh, uh, glacially polished domes like Limbert's Dome in Tuolumne Meadows. He saw moraines everywhere he looked. He saw uh, erratics, boulders that had been stranded miles from their origin by the retreating glaciers. He saw many signs of glaciation. 
And he started telling everyone who would come close to him that uh, not only Yosemite Valley, but much of the Sierra Nevada was formed by glaciers. And they said poppycock nonsense. And Whitney made very disparaging remarks about Muir in public, saying he was an ignorant shepherd and he ought to keep to, uh, uh, tending his sheep. And I think this sort of stung Muir because he took off. He, uh, he, he spent no money, really. Uh, he was uh, hired by an uh, early hosteler of the uh, valley. And he took a couple of years off and just started making expeditions all over the Sierra Nevada out from Yosemite Valley. And he was looking for the remnants of a glacier because he figured they must still be around. And he went into places, the very remote high areas of the Sierra Nevada, and by golly, he found many glaciers. And these were remnant glaciers, it is true, but nonetheless, they were still glaciers that you could walk, navigate down into the shrund of the glacier, and you could see this was ice down here. And uh, so he, he made important discoveries uh, about the cleavage joints of, uh, basalt, of a basaltic uh, rock as well. Uh, so he was a, a quite respected uh, scientist who made discoveries and was well known to the distinguished scientists in those areas as well. And the interesting thing to me is, I mean, I was a scientist as well. That was my day job for mm-hmm. uh, 30 some years uh, uh, as a teacher of, and researcher in biology. And he discovered something that, I, that has come to me, and that is you can come to a spiritual appreciation of the natural world, a science uh, and uh, uh, an appreciation of the spiritual dimension of life and of the natural world uh, are not contradictory. Mm-hmm. And Muir saw this, and he's an excellent example of, of, of the two being uh, in concert, if you have the eyes to see and if you don't go off the deep end. And there is that famous quote that... Um well, there's the two quotes. There's the Tao quote, which is the greatest spirituality of all is knowing better the 10,000 mm-hmm. things. Yes. And then there's John Muir's quote that you cite, which is, if you can just keep still and listen and look, you will not only learn the science of the world, but you will learn the 10,000 things and the, the creator. The, yes. The, yes. It's, uh, it's, it's something that it's a, it's a trick. These, these days we're so bloody busy and we're always rushing around and it's and it's so noisy out there uh there's just all this glorious stuff to be seen and to heard and we seem to wall ourselves away from it which is a real shame there's a place in the time just to open your eyes and open your ears and be aware of the glory of the uh, natural world and we seem to have lost that these days and that's a shame and one reason I, I wrote the book and I spent so much time on Muir and his uh, worldview is that I think it's uh, very important for us to rediscover the world and our proper place in it. And, and there's not only a philosophical reason to do that, but these days with global warming and climate change, there's a very excellent practical reason for us to realize that you know we're not in charge here and that there's a lot out there above and beyond people. And uh, if we don't rediscover that fairly soon, uh, we're already having difficult times now with the climate change that our previous attitude has uh, begun. And if we don't very quickly uh, pull back from this idea that humans are in charge and we're put here to subdue the earth and have dominion over it, 
that's got us into some trouble that's only going to get markedly worse and worse mm-hmm. in the and not the coming centuries, the coming decades, mm-hmm. really. And so I think that's one other reason why it's important for us to learn about John Muir and to learn about Taoism, to learn about what I call the imminent worldview, which is a, a view that that incorporates what they see about the world. So this idea of imminence starts very, very early in the book, and it is explored throughout the the discussion and description of your researching John Muir, and then it comes up again in part two where you're starting to talk about Taoism and the similarities that you kept finding and getting pulled by. So this is imminence, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, and it really stands out as a word while I was reading of this is being used a little differently. This is being used for a purpose. Describe what you mean when you say imminence, Ray. Well, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's an old uh, and uh, frequently used uh, term in philosophy. It's sort of the counterpoint to transcendence. Mm-hmm. Uh, transcendence is the idea that uh, we're only uh, here on earth as a trial uh, to see how well we do, and then we can go on to a transcendent realm, which is away from the earth, and whether you call it heaven or whether you call it nirvana or the void, it's a place that's different than the earth, but that's the important place, you see. Imminence is, on the other hand, the idea that uh, a reference to what is here and now, the physically manifest world in which we live in, the earth, the present, the eternal present, the imminent worldview that uh, both Taoism and Muir espouse, it really has three what I've called pillars. Mm -hmm. And this is my take on the pertinent and salient points of Muir's uh, imminent worldview, which I call earth wisdom. The first is that the earth is our home. This is not a test. We're not going somewhere else after this test. We are here, and this is where we belong. The second pillar is that Humans are nothing special. We are one of the 10,000 things. And so the anthropocentric view of Western culture, that we alone are made in the image of God and that God wants us to have dominion over the earth and exploit it and subdue it, this has been rejected. And we now have, instead of an anthropocentric point of view, what I have termed a Gaia-centric point of view, named after Gaia, the Greek goddess of the earth. And in the Gaia-centric point of view, the whole earth with all of its creatures and its uh, rocks and waters, that's our proper focus. And we're all kin. We're all related to each other, all the living things. Then the third pillar is something that Muir looked at and saw. He saw that there's two uh, clusters of phenomenon, and the interplay of them create reality. And he was talking about sun versus shade, and he was looking Mm -hmm. at rock versus water. Some of it's hot, some of it's cool and uh, fluid. The Chinese uh, had a couple of thousand more years in Muir to look at this stuff, and they came up with really uh, a more complete description of yin and yang. Uh, The world is made by the interaction of yin and yang processes and phenomenon. And Muir saw this, and the Chinese saw this as well. And it's important that realize that both contribute to reality equally in their own particular ways. And here in the West, it's been commented upon by many that we have developed for several thousand years a very patriarchal 
way of looking at things in a culture that's patriarchal and that denigrates the uh, yin aspect uh, in favor of the yang aspect. But Muir realized, like the Taoists, that uh, a culture or a person where either yin or yang is out of control and completely dominates is a sick culture or individual. And that in order to get well again, you need a balance between yin and yang. And that's mm -hmm. the third pillar then of uh, earth wisdom and the imminent worldview. Over the long term, there's got to be a balance there. And, and we've completely lost that in the Western tradition, unfortunately. And that's one reason I think why we are, uh, we've wrought this uh, impending catastrophe of, uh, of climate change. And uh, it's, it's coming back to bite us now. And, and that's, I think, why we need fairly short order. We need to uh, balance ourselves and balance our uh, national policies about energy and uh, about uh, the environment and about sustainability. And we need to do it fairly quick. I really am grateful that you spent the time and, and wrote this book and brought these ideas forward and are out on the long walk to get the word out there. I'd love to end with you reading uh, a section from the book. This is all about being positive and maintaining the possibility of being positive for centuries to come. So here's a, a quote from his unpublished journals that he wrote in 1872. And this is something he's, he's observing. He's not an ideologue. He's, he's, all of his thinking is based on his experience and his observations. Wonderful how completely everything in wild nature fits into us as if truly part and parent of us. The sun shines not on us, but in us. The rivers flow not past, but through us. Thrilling, tingling, vibrating every fiber and cell of our substance of our bodies, making them glide and sing. The trees wave and the flowers bloom in our bodies as well as our souls. And every bird song, wind song, and tremendous storm song of the rocks in the heart of the mountains is our song, our very own, and sings our love. So this is what we're trying to see and trying to preserve, and I think it's worth every effort. Every effort. Thank you very much, Dr. Raymond Barnett, for being with us today. It's been a joy. Thank you, Jennifer. Dr. Raymond Barnett is Professor Emeritus of Biological Sciences at CSU Chico, where he was a professor for 30 years. He is the author of eight books, including his most recent, Earth Wisdom, which was published in 2016. Throughout his life, Ray has been an astute observer and student of nature, of the mountains, of religions, music, and mystery fiction. He is wholeheartedly living a Gaia-centric life with his family. Let's join him, shall we? For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos, please visit jewelgarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.